Let's begin reading. Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Lord, bless the preaching and the seeing of your word. I know someone who shall remain nameless, um, and no, it's not Aaron, so don't guess that it's Aaron. It's not Aaron. Uh, he shall remain nameless, who want once to watch a 3D movie, the kind where you're supposed to put the glasses on, but somehow he missed the point that this was a 3D movie, and so he attempted to watch the 3D movie in 2D without the glasses, um, and as I imagine you would have felt the same way, everything seemed a little off uh, throughout the movie. He was a bit confused. It seemed wrong. The movie actually seemed kind of bad, uh, like maybe they didn't know how to make movies uh, because he didn't realize you need the lenses. The lenses make all the difference. Something that is bad or seems bad is actually good. Something that seems ridiculous without them is actually quite impressive. Something that is mockable is actually captivating. Well, this passage requires that we have on the lenses given to us by the Holy Spirit to see what normal human wisdom cannot see. And that sight changes this scene from something mockable to something miraculous. Actually, in the same way that we've talked about before, Mark uses irony, where what appears to be hap happening actually reveals the reverse of what is happening. And so we could even say this about this passage, when we see it with the eyes of faith, with the eyes of the Holy Spirit, the agonizing irony of the cross reveals the matchless glory of Christ. Amen. 
The agonizing irony of the cross reveals the matchless glory of Christ. And my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit would be gracious to us, gracious to me and gracious to you, that we would be able to see the matchless glory of Christ. Because apart from the Spirit, this scene will remain obscure to us or at most commonplace predictable, not miraculous. And I believe the Spirit intends to make it seen in all of its matchless glory. This passage goes back and forth from different themes of seeing His glory. I'm going to give three, but these are, these are overlapping themes. You'll see the same themes come up again and again throughout the passage, but I wanted to give you three so we could zero in on what's, what's happening here. The first is that we're to see His power in His weakness. We're to see His power in His weakness. So as we put on these lenses of faith, these lenses of the Spirit, we're looking through what is apparent to see behind the 2D uh, surface look of the thing to see something that is actually glorious. And the first is to see His power in His weakness. The trial having concluded, we read in verse 21 that they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross. Now, the weakness of Christ would be immediately apparent to the readers because it would be very unusual for anyone heading to execution to not carry their own cross. The normal pattern would have been that when someone is heading to be crucified by the Romans, they carry their own cross beam, but it was heavy. It would have weighed something like 100 pounds. And so this introduction of a, a random passerby to carry the cross of Christ immediately indicates that the, the Savior is physically exhausted. And no wonder. He's been up all night. He's faced trial after trial. He was beaten by the Sanhedrin. Then he was flogged by the Romans. So the blood loss, the exhaustion, just the, the psychological trauma that he's already been through, and he's only heading to the climax of that trauma. He is physically exhausted. So they, they find someone, apparently at random, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they compel him to carry the cross. You may note the surprising inclusion of his children, Alexander and Rufus, commentators speculate, probably accurately, that these names, very unusual for Mark to include names, but that these names would have been known to the original recipients of this gospel, probably in Rome. There is a Rufus that is referenced in the Roman church, and so it is possible that this connected the Romans to this actual event. Hey, I, I, I know that guy. He, he does the offering basket, and his dad carried Jesus' cross. It's also likely commentators, I think, accurately say that in Simon, there is a kind of played-out reality of what Mark has been saying about the Christian life, that we are, in its essence, to be those who take up our cross and follow Jesus. But the central point here that they would have gotten is that Jesus is exhausted, the man who is going to die on the cross is a man. He is a God-man, but his humanity was not diminished or lessened, or we would say it better, shielded by his divinity. He is a man in the same way any man in this room is a man. 
He would feel the same exhaustion, the same pain, the same trauma, the same quivering muscles, the same inability to take another step under the weight of this crossbeam in light of the pain and exhaustion he was already experiencing. So the weakness of Christ is immediately introduced to us. And they bring him, it says in 22, a, a place called Golgotha. That there's, there's a sense of, of the impending nature of the doom that awaits him and even the name of the place. And they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. But here's the point I want to highlight in this opening theme. But he did not take it. So what we are presented with here on the surface in the 2D version is an exhausted man who is unable to do what is even normally required and carrying his own crossbeam. The Roman soldiers were not going to carry it for him, so they find somebody to carry it, lug it for him up the hill, and then they offer him this drink. Now, there's, there's different persuasions about what exactly this drink was. I think the most likely explanation is that this was some kind of mild narcotic that was attempting, probably not out of benevolence, if the soldiers gave it to them, they're just probably trying to make their job easier. I think that's a compelling argument that some make. As they're nailing him to the cross, that they're, they're hoping to minimize at least initially some of the pain but we find this shocking phrase, he did not take it. And the only explanation for that is to go back to the garden and remember Jesus' determination to drink of the suffering of the cross and of the punishment that was coming to him fully and without any mitigation. It goes all the way back to the wilderness when he said to the devil, I will not use my divine power to minimize the suffering of my mission. And here we come to the very end when of all times anybody would be justified in saying, give that guy a drink. And we have this little buried phrase that ought to be precious to us. He did not take it. Now that phrase captured me this week. Because when I think about my own tendency towards escapism and the idol of comfort, craving things to dull or avoid or ignore or deny the burdens of life, even to the point of sinful excess. And then I read, he did not take it. It reminds me that Jesus bore the full weight of my little moments of idolatry. And it reminds me that when I am tempted to escape from the burdens of life to anything, relatively good things that I love too much, television or food, or just staring into space and not wanting to serve anybody anymore, that I can come to this Savior who did not take it because he would bear without any dulling of his senses, the full weight of my sin. So what do you see in that? Well, if you're just a Roman soldier, you see an idiot. You see a fool. 
Clearly, you don't know the kind of pain you're about to endure. But if you have the eyes of the Spirit, you see strength in weakness. You see someone who, even in his physical exhaustion, Jesus was not going to be able to suddenly become Superman, invulnerable to pain. No, he was going to feel exhaustion. His legs literally couldn't make it there. He collapsed. They had to find somebody who could carry this for him. The most he could do was get himself up the hill. But then, when the drink comes, that of all times you would think he could take, he says, no, no. No. He would not drink it. So eyes of faith, what do they see? They see strength. They see resolve. They see the Savior again speaking the same words that he spoke in the garden. Your will be done. We see strength in his weakness. And I think it should motivate us when we face our temptations to escape or the idol of comfort to come to this one who was strong even in his weakness and gives that same strength to his people to turn to him rather than to idols as we carry our cross following after him. What do we see? First of all, we see strength in his weakness, but then Mark elevates that same theme. And secondly, we see his kingship in his crucifixion. We see his kingship in his crucifixion. Notice what the passage says. And they crucified him in verse 24. And they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they, phrase again, crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his left and one on his right. Notice the repeated use of that word. They crucified him. They crucified him. And with the other robbers, they crucified him. It's as if Mark, who is very sparse in his words, wants to put that word right up in the faces of his readers. Now we come to it and Mark, Mark provides no details about crucifixion for his readers would be painfully familiar with this form, this horrible form of execution. I mean, the physical pain alone is horrifying to consider, not to mention the social humiliation, the spiritual agony that was taking place at the same time. But what is immediately apparent is the brutal torture of the man, his physical agony and shame as he is stripped before the crowds, as his, his heels and his wrists are impaled by large nails, making every movement excruciating. The physical pain would be immense, and this on top of the Roman scourging that had already flayed his back open. So the, the physical agony is thrust in front of us. Here is a man in physical pain beyond our imagination. And we, we need help, I think, to appreciate what Mark's readers would know very well from eyewitness, probably many of them having seen someone crucified. The Roman philosopher Seneca said this, Can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, or letting out his life drop by drop? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, and drawing the life, the breath of life amid long, drawn-out 
agony. William Lane, the commentator, again, helps us appreciate what is immediately apparent. Death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest and me, the most degrading forms of punishment ever conceived by human perversity, even in the eyes of the pagan world. The historian Josephus described it as the most wretched of all ways of dying. And the shudder caused by the cross as instrument of execution is still reflected in the English word excruciating. Yet the physical pain is heightened and emphasized by this crude and demeaning scene at the foot of the cross. Look down at your Bibles. The soldiers caring nothing for the suffering man above them, gamble for his clothes in his presence while he is still alive. It is as if to say, you are as good as dead. Your suffering doesn't even intrigue us. Your shame is irrelevant to us. You don't even get the dignity of being covered in your final hours. You can't even defend yourself from being stripped of your clothing. What is apparent in the two-dimensional view here is the absolute humiliation, powerlessness, and as we heard in previous passages, the cultural stigma attached to this man heightens it as well because the Jews would see him hanging on the cross as a symbol of him being under the curse of God, the stigma of God's enemies, one who is cast out of God's favor and presence and is utter anathema to God's people. That's what is immediately apparent. He is despised. He is rejected. His clothes are taken from him. He is gambled before the very eyes of his tormentors. And his own people count him as a curse. But Mark invites us to see Something more that the Roman soldiers could not see. To them, this is just a stupid, foolish pretender to kingship over a broken people dying as they had seen hundreds of others die before him, unworthy of even a second glance. But the eyes of faith see something more. Even in the way Mark describes the scene, there is a, a prophetic fulfillment taking place unknowingly by the Roman soldiers. Because you can read in Psalm 22, let me read what, what the eyes of faith are intending for us to see here. Psalm 22, David writes, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And verse 16 and 18 say, For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Now we are not aware of any situation where that experience happened to David literally. He's, he's speaking metaphorically of the many times in his life, whereas the righteous king, he was suffering from accusers. 
what he could not know, and what Mark intends us to see is that righteous king is fulfilled in this passage. That there was an even greater king than David, and unbeknownst to the soldiers, their very mockery is playing out the pageantry of showing that the crucified one is actually the righteous king. They are actually literally playing out the drama of Psalm 22 in literal fashion at the foot of Jesus Christ. Mark invites us to see the crucified one, the humiliated one, the powerless one, the cursed one, the shamed one, the forgotten one is actually God's king. The irony is blazoned on the scene by a sign that is placed over his head, the king of the Jews. I mean, the irony is so thick. The, the contrast, the evident purpose of this sign is to make fun of Jesus and to mock the Jews. Pilate insisted that it be placed there over the crucified man as a way of saying, yeah, you want to have a king? This is what will happen to him. You want to have a king? Let me show you what Rome does to pretend kings. Crucifixion itself was so torturous as a way of Rome declaring their absolute power and absolute ability to crush, to literally crush, to impale, to humiliate anyone who dared oppose them. And that's what we're doing with Jesus. They're saying, Jews, you want a king? Let me show you what Rome does with kings. There's your king. It's intended to be mockery. But as the passage will continue to, to do this same technique, the mockery actually preaches. I mean, ironically, the mockery is actually a sermon. In the wisdom of God, the, the mockery, king of the Jews, impaled, bleeding, dying man, king of the Jews. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He is actually the king. We're, we're to see his kingship in his crucifixion, we're to see the king in the one on the cross. He is the king. He is the ultimate king of Psalm 22. With roaring lions around him, his clothes gambled for at his feet as he gasped for air, we are meant to see the king. We are meant to say, that is my king. That is my king on the cross. There he is. There is the majesty on the cross. Yes, I see him bleeding. Yes, I see him gasping. Yes, I see his shame. Yes, I see his humiliation. Yes, I see you gambling for his clothes, but you wouldn't know it. But that reveals him to be my king. We are meant to see the king. It's the king who is crushed. It's the king who is in physical agony. It's the king who is pierced. It's the king gasping for air. It's the king whose lungs are slowly filling with liquid. It's the king whose body is in shock. It's the king who is lifted into the air like the snake on the tree in the wilderness. It's the king who is drinking the full cup of Adam's curse. It's the king doing all of these things. Mark will emphasize the meaning of this crucifixion in the mockery of the final section here. But I, I want to bring one important application to just this, this truth that we see the king 
on the cross willingly for his people. Jesus was not an unwilling martyr. We have to get that straight. He's not a king who was in the fluctuations of political interests, was taken down off his throne and unjustly executed by a mob. That, that, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. This is the king who actually has all power and authority over these people who is willingly going to this humiliation in order to save them. This isn't one of these tragedies of history where a great man was taken down by an unruly and unwitting mob. No, no. This is the one with power who is choosing to embrace all of these sufferings. That was the point of the garden, to make it very clear. I, I, I will do this. That's why Isaiah 53 makes it clear it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has brought him to grief. One application for this, this truth we're supposed to see. Seeing the king on the cross willingly should make us humble. It should make us humble. It should crucify pride. The theologian Carl Henry said, how can anyone be proud when they stand next to the cross? Amen. It should make us humble. Listen, we're all proud. If you don't think you're proud, you're proud of not thinking you're proud. You're proud. I am proud. Pride, it just is seeped into our bones. It's in our DNA. We love thinking great thoughts about ourselves, and we love it when others agree with the great thoughts we have about ourselves. We assume great things of ourselves. Humility seems to not fit us like a piece of piece of clothing that just doesn't suit us the right way. Pride seems right to us. It seems accurate to us. Until we come to the cross. You know, the lenses of faith, they not only reverse our view of Jesus, they reverse our view of those who are exalting themselves over Jesus. Not only does he seem glorious instead of shameful, pride seems shameful instead of glorious. These soldiers and the scribes that will mock him and so forth, they, they go from seeming confident and impressive to themselves to seeming foolish, even absurd, grotesque, evil. And that's what the cross does to pride. Listen, we might be proud of people's opinion of us, but we should be humbled to see the king hanging on the cross. Maybe, maybe you're proud of your physical fitness or your appearance. We should be humbled to see the king stretched out on the tree, his limbs pierced, his back lacerated, his body stripped. Could we really be proud of how we look? next to him. We might be proud of our possessions. We should be humbled to see the king dying as his earthly goods are stolen from him and gambled for at the foot of the cross. 
The crucified king is the right antidote to the arrogant heart. And don't be deceived if your particular form of pride expresses itself in self-pity. Self-pity just says, I wish I could be impressive. I wish I could be beautiful, smart, accomplished, fit. I wish I could, but I can't. Self-pity is just disappointed pride. It's I want to be, I crave being, but I'm not, and that really bums me out. Self-pity is just disappointed pride. And the best way to become humble, whether you're a self-pitying type or you're a boasting type, is to sit down next to the crucified king and have a conversation with your pride there. Look up at him, pride. Are you really still impressed with that outfit, that physique, that possession, that applause? Are you really still craving that good opinion? Are you really still worried about what they think of you? Are you really still bragging about that promotion or that grade or that accomplishment? Are you really still desperate for people to approve of you? Are you really still when the king is on the cross? Let's take our pride to the cross and let it die there. The best way to become humble is to sit down next to the crucified king, to love him for his humility, to see the dignity of his indignity, the glory of his voluntary humiliation, and to gladly lower yourself in homage to him. Isaac Watts was trying to say this when he said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. But even here, we have not seen nearly enough. Jesus was not just a humble king. Even the world at some level might appreciate that. At some level, sometimes the world appreciates a kind of humility, of self-sacrifice. But he was more than that. He was a savior. We're to see his salvation finally in his death. We're to see his strength and his weakness we're to see his kingship in his crucifixion, and we're to see his salvation in his death. The irony of these final verses is thick and reveals a divine beauty behind the ugliness on the surface. Three groups of people mock the Lord while he suffers on the cross. And in this mockery, there is preaching. There is preaching. If I can change the metaphor and imagine some kind of 3D mechanism on your ears, what you hear on the surface is mockery. But what you hear through the Spirit is preaching. You hear preaching, preaching unlike any other. 
Preaching worthy to come back to again and again. Preaching worthy to listen to. Preaching worthy to cling to in your darkest moments of despair and conviction. Preaching worthy to bow our knee and open our ear. Preaching worthy to melt our heart. There is preaching in the mockery of the crowds around Jesus. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. We might say shaking their heads. It was a a symbol of physical rejection, of, of saying of someone, oh, look at that odious, disgusting revelation of God's judgment. Wagging their heads. And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now on the surface that makes sense. Jesus had made some strange statement about if they were to destroy the temple, he could rebuild it in three days. They assumed it was a a statement of amazing physical power and construction ability. And they said, well, you great temple builder, look at you on the cross. If you can't even come down from the cross, how could you build a temple in three days? You can't destroy our temple. You can't rebuild it in three days when you can't even save yourself from the cross. But the preaching, the preaching that Mark wants us to hear, the preaching based on what Jesus has said he was going to do, the preaching, the preaching that you can hear if you listen, says this, the one being mocked as being unable to destroy the temple is removing the need for the temple by being the sacrifice for sinners. The one who's being told, you can't even save yourself from the cross, is replacing the need for ongoing sacrifice by being the presence of God among his people. The one who is God's presence, who tabernacled among us, is the one on the cross. The temple was a building, a symbol of a holy God willing to come among a sinful people and willing to make a way that they didn't have to run from him. They could approach him. But it was temporary and imperfect because they had to sacrifice lamb after lamb, and it was never enough to pay for sinners. It was never enough to restore Eden. But here, here, here there is one who is God in the flesh, and God in the flesh in his his death is destroying the need of the temple, obliterating the purpose of it, because now God is among his people, and among his people on the cross. And on the cross, he is obliterating the sacrificial system in its entirety. And he will indeed raise it up again. This preaches. This preaches. In their mockery, they could turn around and preach. Christ is the new temple. Christ is the meeting place for God and man. Christ obliterates the need for sacrifices. Christ eliminates the need for a building that only some could approach because now all can draw near. Oh, this is a much, much better temple. Not just Jews and not just men and not just a high priest, but women and people of every ethnicity and tribe and generation can draw immediately in to the Holy of Holies in this temple because this temple is much better than the old temple and this temple will rise again. They mock and the Holy Spirit preaches. So also it says the chief priests, how ironic, 
The priests who spent year after year seeing the sacrificial system and understanding this dies in place of this. This dies so that this doesn't die. This is punished in place of this. Again and again and again and again and again. Lamb after lamb and goat after goat. This dies in place of this. This deserves to die and this dies. The language of substitution is on their lips as mockery. But by the Holy Spirit it preaches. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. On the surface, oh, that makes sense. How can you save others if you can't bring yourself down from the cross? But by the Holy Spirit, it preaches, He will save others by staying on the cross. He will save you and me and our spiritual children. By staying. He can't save others by coming down, though he could save himself. But by staying there, he can save others. He can be the Messiah, the Christ that Israel really needs. What they were saying is, we'll believe in you if you show physical power by coming down from the cross. What Mark is saying and the Holy Spirit is saying is, you should believe in him because by staying on the cross, he accomplished the most powerful possible salvation that the Christ could accomplish. You should believe in him not by him coming down from the cross, but because he stayed on the cross so that now your sin and your sin and your sin and your sin is paid for by that lamb on the cross. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of Christ crucified. Because in their mockery, the Holy Spirit preaches, he didn't save himself so he could save you. He didn't save himself because you should have been there. And someone had to die for your sin. Someone had to die for my sin. Someone had to suffer for your rebellion against God, your ignoring of God, your idolatry of the things of this world, your loving of earthly treasures, your lust, your pride, your arrogance, your selfishness, your appeasing of the cravings of your flesh. Someone had to die for that rejection of God and his worthiness. And someone did So a believer looks at Jesus and says, I believe. I believe. I see your salvation not in that you saved yourself from death, but in that you died to save others. Even as Jesus said, the Son of Man, what did he come to do? Not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom, a payment for many. Through the ears of the Spirit, their mockery preaches. He's reviled by the crowds. He's reviled by the priests. He's even reviled by those who are crucified next to him. Warning, I think, those who assume 
that great suffering will one day lead me back into following Jesus? Apparently not. Because at least one of these thieves died with his final words apparently being the mockery of Jesus Christ. So the idea that we can delay repentance is dangerously corrected by this passage. Doesn't the cross, in all of its ironic agony, preach the matchless glory of Jesus Christ? Doesn't it reveal his honor, his dignity, his sufficiency? Doesn't it invite us to honor him by trusting the sufficiency of his suffering for our sins? There is no place for clinging to guilt when you come to the death of Jesus Christ. There is no place for doubting the sufficiency of the Son of God dying for sinners. There is no place for boasting in ourselves. And there is no place for doubting his sacrifice when we see him saving others by not saving himself. Here, here he is. Doesn't it invite us to live in its shadow, adoring our suffering Lord at his crowning achievement? And don't we want to sing out in praise, to meditate in worship, to adore him, to mortify our own sins afresh by a look at his glory, to remember the sufficiency of his sacrifice in paying for our sins, that he is the perfect temple, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect savior. Doesn't the cross... Ironically, preach the glory of Christ. This is what John Newton thought. John Newton, the slave trader, who was arrested by the grace of God and turned into a hymn-writing pastor. He said this to close. I saw one. Oh, I pray that we see one. I pray for you young people, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, 15 years old. I pray you will see one. I pray for future preachers in here. God, let there be future preachers in here that they will see one. Pray for mothers whose job is to help little ones see one. Pray for fathers whose main task is to help their families see one. And I pray for Christians that we would be eager to tell others that they need to see one. I saw one, Newton says, hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath 
can I forget that look? It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mayest live. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled. That I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please, Lord, let us see. By the Holy Spirit, Lord, let us see the glory of your death, the sufficiency of it, the meaning of it, the power of it. Purge us, Lord, of the eyesight of this world, craves physical power and prominence and pride. And give us eyes to see true glory. Lord, may the guilty see the sufficiency of your death and be set free from their guilt. May the weary see the strength of the Savior and be made strong in their weakness. May the proud be humbled. May the humble be emboldened. May Christians preach and sing. Lord, we pray the prayer of Moses lingering at your cross. Show us your glory. Receive our worship, Lord Jesus.